I am Brad Levitt, host and founder of A Finer Touch Construction, and we're super excited to bring this amazing guest list to you of people that specialize in business, marketing, social media, entrepreneurship, and most of all, how to build a great company. AFT Construction is a local commercial and residential general contractor located in Scottsdale, Arizona, and we are continuously seeking ways to bring value to our industry clients and network. You can subscribe to us on any major listening directory by searching the AFT Construction Podcast. And of course, a big thanks to our sponsor, Sub-Zero Group Southwest. So if you're starting a new kitchen project, the Sub-Zero Wolf & Cove showroom is the place to start. It provides an immersive environment to help you realize the possibilities of your future kitchen. Discover what it may feel like, look like, taste like, all in an exploratory, no-pressure showroom. No matter who you are, consumer, owner, or member of the trade community, the showroom is ready to assist you throughout your entire project. I visit the Sub-Zero Wolf & Cove showroom in North Scottsdale quite often. In fact, it's just around the corner from my office, so it's the perfect place to meet with my clients and the designer on the project. When we arrive, we meet with the showroom consultant whose sole focus is catering the visit to our needs. They seek to understand what products may be best suited for the client and then explain and demonstrate special features and functionality. We can browse the complete line of Sub-Zero Wolf & Cove appliances and then view them in beautifully designed vignettes, helping my clients envision how the appliances might look like in their home. The best part is that the consumers can interact with the products. They can turn the knobs, open the drawers, and ignite the flames, discovering the best fit for them. With the help of the showroom consultant, each visit is truly unique to the client. The relationship with the showroom does not end with the appliance selection process. Throughout the entire project, the showroom team is there to provide helpful solutions and offer advice and assistance. After appliances are installed, owners can expect a lifetime of support and helpful resources. The Sub-Zero Wolf & Cove showroom is the place to start, experience, and bring your visions to life. Schedule an appointment at your nearest showroom by visiting www dot subzero dash wolf dot com backslash showroom so today on the episode we welcome jason black who is president and owner of artisan signature homes and definitely stay tuned for this episode we we're going to speak about some amazing things in regard to social media uh, how to effectively build your instagram and we're really going to dive into the business of construction and some of the behind the scenes especially with budgets so great episode and a little background on jason he actually had a successful career prior to construction and never found the passion for his work. So he followed his true passion of houses, in particular new homes. So in 2002, he founded his first construction company while still working full time and started the process of learning how to build a custom home. And through that process, you know, eventually started a, a second business and then finally started his true passion, which is artists and signature homes. And they build some amazing homes in Louisville, Kentucky. And his wife, Gretchen Black, uh, who I've been fortunate to meet is a tremendous and talented designer and they've had a lot of projects together. So stay tuned and you'll definitely enjoy this episode with Jason. So welcome to the AFT Construction Podcast. And today I'm excited to present one of my really good friends that I've known for quite some time now, Mr. Jason Black, who's president and owner of Artisan Signature Home. So welcome, Jason. Hey, man. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to finally uh, connect with you uh, on your podcast, man. I've been enjoying a lot of your great episodes, so fun to be a part of it. Well, thanks for the support. And of course, you're rocking that beautiful hat. So for those tuning in on YouTube, they're going to be able to see that uh, nice AFT hat you got on. That's right. This is uh, this dates back a few years, but uh, I wear it with pride. <laughs> well, that's great. So let me ask you this, Jason. I mean, I, I want to dive into, I mean, you've had I've always aspired, I think, when we first met through Instagram, even before we met in person, you know, out at Cambria that we'll dive into. But, you know, you really had this presence on social media. And we'll get into that because I think you have a lot to offer, especially builders trying to figure out how to 
present themselves. You know, when you're a designer architect, it's easy to do that. But before we do that, I want to dive into construction a little bit. And so you have some amazing designs, right, that really speak to a lot of designers, architects, and the general public. And so are these typically spec homes that you're doing, or are these built to suit for clients? So we do a combination of, of build the suit with clients. We've got some amazing clients. But then we also, you know, we're close with my wife, Gretchen, who does interior design. And we, almost all of our spec homes, her and I kind of collaborate on the design. And what we're looking for, it's an opportunity for me. I consider it almost my laboratory. So I'm experimenting with what I think is going to be something new or different. And not so much trendy, but all my stuff, I try to be classic and tried and true, but still a little bit maybe cutting edge or, you know, we're in Louisville, Kentucky, so we're not the the West Coast, we're not the East Coast, but I still get inspired by all those designs. And so we use those spec homes as an opportunity to really influence the design of our customers and apparently a few others out there. So I, I guess the question is when you talk about experiment, I mean, I, you definitely have a little bit more flexibility when you're doing a spec, right? And and because you can make those own decisions, you can kind of create the timelines and, and everything behind the scenes. So what's the intent? Is the intent to utilize the creativity for marketing purposes? Is it for um, to try just new construction techniques or design elements? I mean, what is kind of the thinking behind it? So the intent is I just... I really appreciate good design, no matter what the style is. So the intent is to try to do something that is just different. I get bored. You know, if somebody told me I could make a billion dollars building the same plan a, a million times. I'd probably, I'd probably say yes, but it wouldn't excite <laughs> me, you know? <laughs> so... I, but there's I some truth there. If I interrupt you, I know what you mean. It's like, yeah, there's there's the ma the money side, which some people chase that, but that doesn't really bring the happiness, right, or the day-to-day -day complexity. And what you're saying is, I'd rather do something a little more challenging and not so much chase that dollar. Yeah, and I think one of the things that has attributed to our success is I've definitely not chased the dollar. I've always sacrificed the dollar, the monetary aspect for good design, you know, maybe to a flaw, but that's what I enjoy to do. So that's what I'm going to do. Um, and, you know, I mentioned we build the spec homes, but, you know, I'd say probably 25% of our business is spec homes. The other 75% are custom builds for clients. And, you know, I have some clients that are very set in their way that have a great vision that I help carry out. But then I have others that, you know, they may come to me because of Instagram or because they've seen something and they just say, Hey, I want what you do. Just create me something. And it could be one picture they've given me or nothing. And I'll, you know, sit with them and just understand what's important to them. And then I'll run with the design and try to create something for them that is different from their neighbor. It always cracks me up when the builders in a certain market will copy other builders in that market and do the same thing. And I'm like, you know, be a little bit different, maybe go to a different market or, you know, prior to 2020, we traveled a ton and used our opportunity to travel, to look at different designs and bring those back to Louisville and kind of put our spin on it. No, I love that. And I guess before I dive into that, because I have some questions about the design side, but what I really like that you touched on, Jason, I think it's really important. You talked about that you sacrificed dollar for good designs. And it's funny because, you know, I, 
in, in a lot of meetings, at, at least with people that I've networked with, you know, they use the term in sales, lost leader, right? And, and sometimes you take a project and you're not chasing the dollar. You may not make money. It's an investment because, but, but it may get you into a community you want to build in. It may get you into a network you want to build in. Or in your case, we may do a design that's different that's going to put us on the map. And that's where I think a lot of people in business, they, they, they worry about the bottom line and they don't think about long-term, right? If I'm investing in my business, investing in myself, I'm betting on myself, it's okay to maybe not make a dollar today because in the future, this is going to compound and now build that platform. And, and I feel that's what you've done as I've followed you for the last, you know, four years. I've, I've seen your business grow, Jason, where now you're doing these amazing projects. And, and, and I feel that you've really understood that term lost leader and you've applied that to what you're doing now. Well, you know, it's funny. Um, we built a, one of the first show homes we did. This is dating back probably 10 years ago. And we did an amazing show house. It was, you know, one best of show, won all these awards. We built it as a spec home and we didn't sell it. It didn't sell because, you know, we overbuilt probably for the lot and for the neighborhood. But man, was it a cool house. And I was talking to the builder next door. And this is after the show. He had sold his house. And uh, we were just talking. And I said, how's the show for you? He's like, man, great. I sold my house. I made X percent. And I'm stoked. I was like, oh, man, that's awesome. I said, did you get any new leads off of off the show house? He's like, no, but man, I made, I think he was saying, man, I made 20% or something. <laughs> and I was like, okay. He said, how about you? He's like, man, we haven't sold it yet, but I've got over a dozen leads from the show house. And he's like, man, a dozen, you know, so that's a perfect example of short-sightedness. He was worried still on that show house. And obviously you've got to build, you've got to make money if you want to be in business for any, any amount of time. So the dollar is important, but there is definitely an opportunity for a lost leader. And you got to pick and choose those projects that make sense to, you know, make it a lost leader, or it doesn't have to be a lost leader, but maybe you make a few less percentage points because you put a cedar roof on it or you do Cambria courts in the kitchen, or you do something a little bit different than the competition is doing. No, I love that you share that, Jason. It's funny because we had a very similar example. We had a project that I knew going in, the client was very adamant how much they wanted to pay their builder, and it was limited. And I knew going in that this was not going to be a project that we were going to net any dollars, hopefully break even just on what they were. But it gave us the opportunity to break into this community that we had wanted to be in. And fortunately... Not only did the home turn out amazing, but as you mentioned, we, you know, with some of our vendors that were involved, Cambria and some other ones, you know, this ended up being nationally published, you know, through their assistance and ended up putting us on the map, if you will. And so I think anyone listening, I mean, whether you're a designer, architect, builder, it doesn't matter, even a small business owner, look at the strategic, you know, opportunities that are out there. As Jason said, dollars important, but it's not everything. And and I guess so as we move this conversation along, I mean, getting into the design side, I mean, you have a big input on that, Jason. You have good taste. You have a good eye for that, which I think comes natural to you. Your wife is a designer. So do you typically have designers on every project? Or I know Gretchen's involved with you, and this is kind of a multi-layered question. Or are you ever doing projects where you're acting as a designer builder for the client? So we there's a couple things we have on every project we do. One is a great builder, obviously. Uh, <laughs> the second is a uh, is a great architect, and we we use C three architecture a lot with our designs. And then we always make our 
clients have an interior designer with our projects. So we found over the years, I mean, you just learn and you get better as time goes on. And our most successful projects are the ones that run smoothly. Decisions are hopefully made on time. We still struggle with that sometimes, but having the designer in there really helps that homeowner who probably has great taste, has a great vision, but it's just pulling everything together and making sure the whole house coordinates and you don't have a little mismatch from, from room to room. So we feel it's important to have that designer, whether it's Gretchen who helps me on a good portion of them, but she can't do them all. And she'd rather do a couple of them, do them really well. than you know, we do some, some fun houses that take just a lot of time from the designer's perspective. So we share that out. We probably have three to four designers that we work with regularly. And then we've worked with, you know, a handful of others over the years. I, I love that you had that philosophy. And it's funny, I think both you and I learn over the years, like in the beginning, you want a job and the client's like, well, I don't need a designer. Okay, well, we want the job. We're going to figure it out. And then it is so strikingly painful to like get to the finish line. And I found that we had the same philosophy, especially in the last two years that if they don't have a designer, then we're not the builder for you. Like don't even entertain that. And, and I know I've had some clients push back and we've had to help them understand the value because the reality is I, I can build a home faster. I can build it more efficiently, um, more, it's more, um, cost advantageous to the client and it's a more, um, it's a, it's a better relationship with the client. Right. And so I'm sure you can attest to that. And, you know, so how do you balance? Cause one of the questions I get from a lot of builders too is okay, Brad, you know, it's great to have a designer and I understand that it can build quicker and you have specifications and, you know, it makes the communication, your communication better with your subs. How do you manage the budget? How, especially at the beginning, cause Jason, you get involved at the very beginning with your clients. So how do you create that budget and how do you make sure that it's going to fit with the design? Yeah. Well, first of all, it's still not a perfect process because, you know, everybody's budget, it seems to change through the process. So we try to get a general idea. And sometimes it's tough because clients don't want to share their budget. And so I, I poke and prod and say, well, here's a house we did that's, you know, it's probably 1.5 million. Is that in the ballpark? So if they don't give me a number, I really try to get a number out of them because I'm in the business of building houses, not designing houses. So over the years, I've built a fair number of houses that just didn't get built that I thought were great houses, but they ended up over budget or just, you know, the scope creep changed. So we try to get that budget up front. And then we spend an average of four to six months of pre-construction before we actually start building. So with the architectural drawings, once we have the plans that are, I'm going to say three to four revisions in, we've got a solid floor plan. We've got a solid elevation. We will then get our homeowner paired up with our designer. We'll go make selections for cabinetry, tile, appliances, countertops, all those items that can really drive the budget. I say up or down, but it's really drive that budget up. We want our clients to touch and feel those budget numbers. So when we get to the point where we're signing a contract, it, it's probably going to be a little bit more than what they originally anticipated, but they're almost avoiding the change orders down the road. They're doing them up front. So I would rather, before somebody signs a contract and commits 100%, I want to be realistic with them to say, hey, I think your house is going to cost this. 
well, I don't think I know what it's going to cost and we'll guarantee them, hey, this is what it's going to cost. Unless you change something or do a major addition to the project, this is going to be your budget. I, you know, I tell people, you can sign on, sign the contract. You can go to Arizona for a year, you know, and, <laughs> and play and we'll build the house for you and it'll be on budget and, you know, you'll already have it pre-picked out. Uh, it doesn't always work that smooth, but we try to do more and more upfront work before we start construction. Oh, it's so valuable. I think creating those expectations really helps too. So in that four to six months, how involved or how detailed without giving away all your company secrets, I guess, you know, are you breaking down, you know, per line item or saying, Hey, in the laundry, you know, we can go a little more extravagant and we can have, you know, $30 a square foot for tile for the flooring or, you know, this backsplash in the kitchen or a kid's bathroom. I mean, how detailed do you get or are the designers asking to help them stay at least somewhat close to that overall budget? Yeah. So ideally we build the budget as we go and we'll try to give them certain parameters so they don't pick a high end marble in every single bathroom. So we may say, Hey, the master we've allotted for a nice marble and the kids baths or guest baths, it might be a porcelain tile. So Start with those selections and, you know, we'll get a tile budget. Usually we'll get an overall budget for tile labor and tile material. And at a very high level, we'll, we'll go ahead and substitute in the contract an actual dollar figure, usually at the high level. But then we back it up with the detail of what's included. We try not to get too detail on the specific cost because we feel like the customer gets lost sometimes the more information they see. So we try to keep it at a higher level, get them excited about the project, focus on the build, the finishes, and let us do the detail work of the, you know, the budget and managing that. Now, every client's a little bit different. Sometimes, you know, engineers, accounting, people want to get really deep into the details and we'll go there if we need to, but we try to avoid that and really focus on, the process, the materials, and the build, and let them enjoy that part of it and not get so focused on the nitty-gritty of this tile's $2.97 a square foot. No, I like that, Jason. I think what's important, I mean, it just shows that you really know your product, you know your numbers, because what happens is when you're looking at a house, you may say, okay, on this square foot house, on average, we're maybe sixty-eight to 75000 for countertops. We're maybe somewhere in this range. And what that allots to is, as you mentioned, you know, a marble in the kitchen, an engineer quartz here, and then maybe a, a granite here, whatever it may be, you know, for a solid surface. And then at least you have a range. So you're not so much, here's a square foot, but you know your numbers enough where if they stay within those confines and they don't go crazy, um, picking some prehistoric, you know, onyx or something that's going to be five times the price, right? Then you should be good. I mean, it should be pretty relatively close and there's going to be some ups and downs between light items. Yeah. And again, it's, it's trial and error and it's knowing the customer and, you know, it's really trying, you know, you have those customers that are super budget conscious that'll follow our guidelines to a T and then you have folks that, you know, get in and like, yeah, I know this is what you allotted me, but I really want white marble in every bathroom. And I'm like, that's great. You can have that. It's going to take the budget up a little bit. And I always try to remind folks when we're going through that budgeting process to say, you know, 
hey, we can do that for you. It's only going to cost you time and money is, <laughs> is always our answer. Or, you know, Jimmy, my partner, he's like, yes, we can do that. It's just time and money. So by the end of the process, the customer should be trained enough to know that, hey, if I add a coffered ceiling, you know what, it's going to cost me $5,000, you know, so they get to the point where if they're adding stuff, they know there's going to be a cost associated with it instead of adding, 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 and nobody's reining them in or telling them it's going to be more expensive. You know, subconsciously, they probably know it's going to be more expensive, but until somebody tells them, hey, you're adding cost to the budget, um, it's going to cost you more. They'll keep adding until somebody corrects them or at least gives them a price. But once they get those dollars associated with those additions, then it becomes real. And, you know, it's just trying to be realistic and, and setting those expectations and keeping the communication line open throughout the whole design process. Oh, I love that you said that, Jason. For anyone listening, that's super important, just that communication. Because, I, you know, some of this you kind of learn through experience. But I've I've seen where we have an idea of maybe – you know, the millwork for the house, the cabinetry. And as if they're adding built-ins in every corner of the home and entertainment centers, you know, quickly we can tell them this is going to be an upgrade. Or, you know, as your example, the trim, I mean, you do extensive trim work, Jason, but if they're having decorative wood ceilings in every room of the home, that's going to try the budget. And it's important that we at least give them those options so that they can make that decision. So, and just to be forthright, I mean, one of the biggest issues I'm having right now, so in our market, which I'm sure is similar to you, is... You know, the back end cost, I, I feel like we have a good grasp, right? The finishes. I, I have a good pulse for what trim work's going to be, cabinetry, appliances, flooring, you know, backsplashes, countertops. I mean, this stuff is tried and true. We know it. We know the products that are out there. We're very familiar. You know, what's really become a struggle is the front end side. We're seeing some huge movements, right? Lumber has gone double in the last five months. You know, concrete now we're being told shortage and it's been difficult to get product out there and then one of the major issues i do a lot of hillside work and so fema on a national level has had issues with our pad heights and grading and drainage and that's complicated because now we have more retaining walls we're having to build pads up we're having to bring dirt in and that's adding hundreds of thousands of dollars on some of these projects that we you know weren't even forecasting because fema's telling us we have to put these pads so high because of flood you know 100 year flood uh designs and so I guess, how are you managing that aspect? Because that's where, you know, the masonry, the concrete, the framing, you know, some of these hard costs, you really can't VE or pick, you know, a cheaper countertop material. Right. So it's been a, it's been a struggle. So recently, within the last year, I've never put in, <laughs> when I've given somebody a quote that, hey, this quote's only good for 30 days. So we started that earlier this year. So it, it's, you know, as the process goes and you give quotes, it just tends to linger. Uh, maybe somebody's not in a hurry to start. Well, they see that 30 days. They know that, hey, the price is going to go up after 30 days. So that's one way we've tried to speed that up and protect ourselves. Well, let me ask you this real quick, Jason, before you keep going. So when you have the 30 days, you, you know, your projects are like mine. You're doing these, you know, homes that are, are long. So you may sign a contract today, November. Okay, we're going to do this build. Let's just say we're going to do this build for a million dollars. But... You may not start framing because of the site work until February or March, right? And so how are you, I guess, working around that aspect with the vendors and with your clients? So lumber, for example, as soon as I sign a contract, I mean, we've been using 
we're a very loyal subcon or a, you know a builder to our subs. So we've had the same lumber company, gosh, for the last 15 years. And as soon as I know that the deal is good, I'm calling and saying lock my prices. And they'll usually lock me for X number of days, depending on you know the project. There there is a limit to that, especially with the prices going up the way they are, or once they lock it in, we'll we'll ship that first load of lumber as, as soon as possible. So that whole project is is locked in. You know, the other thing we've done is just now is we've started our budgeting process. Instead of doing a contingency overall for the project, you know, maybe a two or three percent contingency in our budget, we've gone in to framing some of those high ticket items and we're putting a contingency in there. Um, so going forward, I don't know how I'm going to approach that with the customer. It could be, you know, I'll share the the downside with them if it comes down, or I'm just taking on all that risk myself. But I'm trying to find ways to, you know, to manage that risk of the increase in all the supplies. So it's, it's definitely not a, a perfect process. The good thing about the increase in lumber is everybody knows about it right now. So all right. my customers are at, yeah. asking about it um and it's it's real i mean you you start putting an extra fifty hundred thousand dollars on a project that's a million dollars i mean it it's you can't hide that so you gotta you gotta be prepared and uh adjust your your plans accordingly yeah it's interesting we've taken a similar tactic i i've seen where especially with framing which is a little bit i would say easier to quantify even though the numbers have been all over the place is we can say okay your framing package is 300,000, right? Lumber, material, trusses, you know, the whole gamut there. Uh, but the lumber itself, maybe let's just call it 100,000 and we're gonna add a $25,000 contingency. So we're not gonna spend this. This is just there in case it goes up, but if it goes down, that's in your favor, that'll be returned back. And and we've, we've never done that before, but we've had to do that now because of the variance, you know, because by the time we break ground to we start framing, I mean, it could be six months because of all the hillside work, right? There's just so much, to that front end side, you know, but what about, you know, some of the other aspects of the front end? I don't know in your market for us, you know, we see it with drywall, you know, lump or labor pricing, concrete, masonry. I mean, so, so these are things that are really hard to quantify because it's not as easy as saying, yeah, lumber can go up or down. Yeah. So in the past, we've always, you know, we may have updated our estimating and and we don't have a sophisticated estimating software. I mean, we go through each plan and we send it out now to all of our vendors that are going to touch this project. So we get a, a solid quote from them on each particular project and we try to lock that price in. So in years past, we may had a square footage price for our painter, for drywall, for concrete. But we're updating that now per project just to try to, to cover ourselves for, for instances like this. And also what we've done on, on some of the bigger projects, like we've got a, a house coming up that's got a, I mean, the trim budget is more than most houses I've ever built. <laughs> and we put that in, we bid it all out, but we put it in as an allowance and a dollar figure. Usually I wouldn't associate a dollar figure to that. But with everything going on, it was just a way to try and, you know, protect us and everybody uh, and, you know, be as open as possible with the customer. 
So how do you lay that out when you have, just for those listening, so what Jason's doing is probably similar to us, where when you get a project, you have your design book, your specs, your architecture plans, you send that out, and you're getting a hard price, right, for all the scope that's in there. So how do you manage, because one of the difficulties is that front-end challenge where, say, this uh, house, you're giving this example, has a lot of trim work. So there has to be some sort of identification from you on the plans to highlight all the ceilings that are getting treatment, right, all the walls, all you know, the doors, all the, you know, everywhere that's getting that trim detail. And so you have to have at least an idea of scope. So when you send out for bid, you're making sure that none of the subs are missing that when they return their proposal to you. Yeah. So that's when we get a good designer in who will actually work with the client, work with us, and we'll actually do sketches of the wall paneling, the ceiling detail, the crown molding detail. So we, we try to back up as much detail as we can so there's less confusion. Anytime I leave too much area for confusion, it, it always seems to backfire. <laughs> and then I'm as the builder, the people pleaser, I'm like, we'll take care of it. You know, we, we weren't clear that what was or wasn't included. So, um, and that's the trouble a lot of times with when you're building or when I'm building, um, these houses the clients are watching everything you're doing and they might be building a million dollar house and they're watching you build a two million dollar house when they're screenshotting or taking pictures of all the ceiling details of the tile or the steel doors and they're like well i'm getting that right i'm getting that right i'm spending a million dollars and it's it's hard to tell a client that hey i know you're spending a million dollars one it doesn't go as far as it used to and you know, if you want all that, it's going to be $2 million, like the house you're referencing. So it's, it, it all boils back down to those expectations and communications with the client. Yeah. It's so funny you say that because we do it the same thing. It, you know, there's levels of all homes and, and the clients will have that expectation as we all do. Right. And, and, and it's hard because they're, you know, they don't do this every day. And so they see things and, and, Maybe HGTV hurt us a little bit where they say <laughs> it's $2,000 for a whole kitchen and cabinetry, right? And you just shake your head thinking there's no way that's that's possible. Um, you, you know, there's some elements there, but I think what's really important, as you men mentioned, Jason, is you're setting those expectations, right? And the more clear you can be, the more scope you can have that helps. And so how, you know, from from your side, just from an overall you know, having a business partner, you know, there's a lot of companies that have partners and some are individual sole proprietors and, you know, there's complexities in all different systems. And so how do you manage that between you and Jimmy, I guess, your role on a day-to-day? -day? Yeah, it's, I enjoy having a partner because I have a lot of great ideas, but I probably also have a lot of terrible ideas. <laughs> so it just gives me that sounding board. And that's the same with Gretchen. He, you know, I'll bounce ideas off of her and I'll think, I'll show her, you know, either different ideas or what and be like, that that's terrible, you know, and, you know, hopefully there's fewer, lesser of those than, than more, but, you know, with a business partner, again, it's just a sounding board. He has better strong suits than I do. Jimmy comes from a, you know, a, a customer service industry background. So, I mean, he is phenomenal with the customer and, you know, I'm good too, but he's, you know, I may return a phone call within the day. He's returned phone calls within like 10 minutes. You know, I just don't know. I'm like, how do you do that? You know, uh, so I, I like to get him out in front of the customers. And then, you know, he's working better relationships with the subs. And I'm with the architects. So we each have our, our specialty. So 
we definitely are are two different uh, animals and he can tackle numbers better than say I can. So the two of us kind of create those synergies as we're working together. Which is good. It is good to have that yin and yang a little bit. And, and then you see that with employees too, because you know which employees have certain strengths and you want to put them in opportunities, you know, in positions where they can be successful, right? And utilize their strong suits. Um, and I've seen that with my team, right? You know, I look at it from there's incredibly talented people and there's some things they're amazingly good at and some that not their forte. And so you have to align them and make sure that they're in those, always in those positions where they can be successful. You know, so from your build time, Jason, when you, if, if a client was re- to reach out to you today, say, we're looking at building a home, we have a lot, you know, what's your typical pre-construction? You mentioned four to six months. Is that till you break ground? And then what's your build time? You know, how does that yeah. range? Depending on, I mean, we do homes from 500,000 to on up. So, you know, we have some that we can build in, in 10 months from, you know, the design time might be two to four months. Um, but on average, it's three to six months or four to six months. And then our build time is usually a year. Um, some of the larger ones may go a year and a half or two years. Uh, but on average, you know, somebody wants a million to $2 million house. Uh, it's in that 12 month build time. And that, I'd say that's typical, but there's nothing typical anymore. That the time frame over the last, I'd say five or six years, it takes me longer each year to build a house. I, I, I mean, as organized as we are, um, you know, just with the decrease in subs and more construction activity, it just seems to take a little longer each year to build these houses. And it's painful, right? Because the longer it takes, the more the client gets frustrated. We get frustrated. Costs go up for both sides. You know, so how do you manage craftsmanship? I know that's something on a national level most of us are dealing with. So for you especially, Jason, I mean, you have homes that have an incredible amount of detail, trim work, as you mentioned, you know, which means you need to have not only a good trim carpenter, but you need a good painter that can prep and paint that correctly. So, you know, how are these mostly people that you've used? Do you see a turnover coming as some of them age? I mean, how are you dealing with the craftsmanship side? Yeah. The fit and finish, I think, of our homes is really what sets us apart when anybody walks through our homes versus the competition. And, you know, it takes a lot of time. I mean, we're very particular on who does the finish work. And we've been very fortunate to have, you know, the same drywall crew. We've got a couple trim crews and one main paint crew that you know, we know the finish we're going to get from these guys and it's going to be phenomenal, but we might wait a couple of weeks for the painter to finish up. So we're always juggling the schedule and, you know, we'll tell the customer up front, Hey, we want Ramon to do your paint job. Um, just know when we get to paint, we're going to plan accordingly, but we might have some downtime. We're waiting on the painter. So, you know, if that's the case, we'll try to either put a driveway in or do additional tile work. So it, we always try to get progress going on every house every day. It doesn't always happen, but we just try to juggle that schedule and wait for our guys that, that we enjoy. Because anytime we alter from our core group of guys, it I'm always disappointed. I'm always redoing stuff. Um and we definitely don't use the cheaper guy. And, and we may not use the most expensive guy, but we're using what we think is the best guy 
who we've got an established relationship with. So we found that that's worked extremely well to, you know, keep the level of our finishes up. And we're not doing 20 houses a year. So we do 10 or less houses a year. So we can usually juggle these guys around and they may work for us and one other builder or something like that. So they're not mass producing trim, trim jobs out there. Which is good. And, and to put you on the spot, I guess. So, you know, it's funny that you had talked about, you know, try not to deviate from your core group, which I think is a great value to have as a company, especially in construction. You know, so I'm sure you've had this question as I get on every project. Well, Jason, I'm your client. You know, my brother is a painter. My cousin's an electrician. You know, I so-and-so is a friend of mine, you know. So how do you navigate that aspect where the clients come in and say, you know, I have so-and-so. Would you be willing to use them on your project, even though you have your tried and true, you know, trade partners? So I I try to think I get better with age as I build and I learn. Um, for the most part, we politely decline. Uh, I will listen to my customer if they have somebody, and I'll I'll want to understand who it is, what they do, and if it is somebody that I think could be a good addition to our team. I will go and inspect some of their work and meet them and maybe get some references. But from the get-go, my my typical answer is no. I said, you're coming to Artisan because you like what we produce. Let me be the builder. You be the customer. Let me do what I'm good at. And for the most part, we don't intermix those subs. Again, anytime I've done that, it turns out to be a disaster somebody gets divorced, you know, something always happens with their guy. And then my guy has to come in and finish it. But, you know, since we've started Artisan, gosh, five years ago, or maybe even six now, maybe once or twice, we brought in somebody else's his crew, but we really try to stick tried and true. And, you know, like I said, we're not trying to build 20 houses a year. We don't bid on a bunch of houses. If somebody comes to us, they want, us to do it and we'll take them through our process. Anytime I fall outside of my process, it it never has a happy ending. You know, I've, I'll have guys bring me a plan and they've already done the plan. They're bidding it against two other guys and like, hey, can you give me a price? And in the past, I'd say yes, but now I'm like, no, we're not interested, you know? And it's just, it's not that I, I want to be this cocky builder, you know, that I'm better than anybody. It's just, I know what's going to happen. They're going to pick the cheaper builder who's misled them on what it's going to cost. And they're going to call me when it's done and say, you were right. You know, it, it really costs X. And, you know, they told me I could build it for $150 a square foot. You know what? It ended up costing 300, like you said it was, yeah. and, you know, <laughs> So, and, and they don't usually call me. It's either, you know, they're either embarrassed to call or I find out through the grapevine that they, they didn't have a great experience. So that's one piece of advice that it's, it's taken me a long time to understand that every customer is not the right customer for me. So it's sometimes better to say no than to take that customer who's going to be a pain in the ass for you. (laughs) And when they start answer asking those questions, you know, can I bring in this guy? Can I do this? Can I do that? You know, warning flags start going off for me. And usually I'll, I'll shorten the meeting as quickly as I can. 
Well, it's funny you say that because how often do, if we're walking into a Tesla dealership or Ford dealership, well, my, my brother-in-law can tint the windows, so-and-so can install, you know, the tires and rims and, you know, the, the sunroof and so forth. And so it's funny because you don't really do that in any industry outside of construction. And, you know, it's really important, as you mentioned, you know, you kind of learn trial and error that, yeah, there is occasion. I'm sure you and I have found some good, you know, subcontractors or partners, you know, through our clients. But in most cases, the relationships with the trade partner and the client. So when you're calling them, Jason, hey, I need you here to meet the schedule. Beyond, they're not really very receptive, um, you know, unless you can vet some things offside. And and I think that's really important to understand, you know, those special requests. And, and, and you mentioned process, like how valuable is that, that if you have processes and you've already made these mistakes, it's easy to stand in front of the client and say, no, this is the process and here's why. Here's here's where it's going to cost you and I money in the end and pain. And so we can help them steer clear with that communication. So so going back to that, I guess, you know, for you, Jason, how are you setting the expectation? Because just to give an example, it's funny, I have a client now that, uh, you know, some clients are, as you mentioned, they'll travel, they'll be out of town, they may visit the project every six months, you know, and I have some that love to visit it on a daily basis, right? And it doesn't matter to me because I know that we can, with our processes, build the home, whether they're there or not, you know, but some clients get really involved, like, well, I like Sergio a lot, like he's doing the tile, I want him to be there, and I don't want this crew. So how do you manage, I guess, the quality side? Do you sit down and orientate your guys' expectation? I mean, some of you have been working with, just to make sure that they can dial in and hit your quality level. Are there certain crews that you request from some of the companies? I mean, talk us through that. Yeah, we definitely have our favorites. Excuse me. Um, get me all choked up here, Brad. Uh, so I was an emotional question. Yeah, I was just talking to my plumbing con- contractor today, and they they are a larger company. So we've chosen to align ourselves on all the mechanical systems, our heating and air, our plumbing, our electrician are all larger companies that have at least a dozen crews or more. And we've chosen that because those are the, the parts of the house that stuff breaks down, stuff has issues, and it's usually on the weekend. So we want a solid company that's been in business for a long time that has a service crew that's going to respond in a timely fashion. So the answer to your question is, do I have favorite crews? So I do. So with my plumber, there's a couple crews that I always request and they know that you know, say I want Steve as, as my plumber. He's meticulous with his piping and he, he always picks apart all the other plumbers. And I learn from him as to, you know, what makes a good plumbing job. So I'll request my guys. And, you know, we we do enough work that the guys respect our wishes. And, you know, we mold as much as we like these guys, we mold them into what they become. So, we have a certain process, we have certain expectations. And by having the same guys on our job site, house and house again, they know that I'm not going to put up with crappy work. So if they're taking shortcuts or if they're just doing something not the right way, they're not going to want to show up on my job site the next house. So they do it right the first time or we make them fix it. And, you know, it's it corrects itself over time by having that same repeated group of guys building, you know, cause again, I'm not building the same house over and over again. So we try to follow that process that we do things a certain way. So we, 
you know, we don't have major issues. Oh, I love you share that. I think that's really important because just that initial orientation, when you're working with a new crew to have set that expectation of what, whether it be site cleanliness or quality, what you're expecting of them. And then as you're guiding them and teaching them and walking through, you know, project number two is going to be better in three and four and so on. And so as you mentioned, you use the term mold them. So it's more just creating that alignment, a vision of what you expect for them to do. And now they can be successful because that expectations, you know, set out for them. So, you know, like electricians, for example, we, we have certain checklists that we go through because, you know, I don't like my, my plugs under windows because I'm usually doing some kind of trim work or paneling under there. So we don't put any plugs under windows or on staircases. We're typically doing wainscoting. So the crews typically learn fairly quickly of what artisans expectations are and where they're doing trim work because it's so much easier to fix that stuff on the front end as opposed to when you're putting trim work up and there's a, a plug right in the middle of a cool decorative panel or trim work. So it's little things like that that, you know, shows that you're paying attention to those little details, but it helps the finished product so much better. I love that you share that because I think there's value there for anyone. The more, and we talk to our superintendents about this all the time, that know your design, know your spec book, and, and if, in fact, have it memorized. Not that you have every specification memorized, but have a good feel for the house, no matter the size of the house, because electrical is a great example. As you mentioned with the trim work under a window, or if a designer has picked a decorative backsplash in the kitchen, you don't want these wall outlets, right? Uh, countertop outlets. You know, you'd rather do like a plug mold or something at the bottom of the upper cabinet that you don't see. And that's where it's really important to understand, you know, what's, you know, return on trim and casing, because do we have space for that and how are we going to transition? And especially, you know, trim is so key with outlets, you know, because you just can't have that interruption and trying to do that drywall stage is a lot more painful than when you're boxing it at frame stage. Yeah. And having some fancy, the last thing I want to do is draw attention to a plug or a switch. And, you know, if somebody's putting a big old one by six box around a light switch, it just drives me crazy. So we'll either try to put it above or below or somewhere inconspicuous. So we, we are pretty particular, but I think it, it gives you the end result that uh, we produce. Well, I think there's a good transition because speaking of the end result, which you know, every time Jason, I mean, anyone that's followed you on Instagram knows the level of quality and detail you're putting out there. So I guess my question for you is, you know, you've had tremendous success on social media. So who manages that Instagram account? So we've got an elaborate team of me. No, <laughs> it's, you know, it's something uh, I have to thank Gretchen. She got me hooked on social media years ago, uh, specifically Instagram. So it's, it's my thing. I enjoy it. I manage it. I've, I've never had anybody else manage it. I like having that personal interaction with the customers, with the followers. And, you know, it's just something that I enjoy. So, uh, and I, I think that's why it's been successful for me. I know a lot of builders have other people manage it and, and there's nothing wrong with that. They probably do a better job than I do, but I like being in, in the weeds as far as the social goes, because it, you know, I get a lot of inspiration. I've met a lot of good friends. I've met you through there. So I think being involved and if a builder can be involved with it, consistently, it will help their business. I mean, I can't tell you how many people over the years that 
get motivated and they're like, I'm going to get into social and they'll post solidly for a week and then they just die off. And they're like, man, it sucks. I don't get anything <laughs> off Instagram. You know, I'm like, well, it's, it's a job. I mean, it, it takes time and it's a commitment to be consistent with it. And if you are consistent with it, it will pay off. It is. It's easy to get burned out. And I think a lot of people, as you mentioned, it's the consistency, right? If you're not consistent, you're going to lose that reach. And so for you, Jason, as you, I, you know, over the years, I'm sure you've learned a lot more about the algorithms and processes of Instagram that have helped, you know, you strategically create your brand. But is there a technique like how do you know what you're going to post each day or throughout the week? Is there a lot of thought behind that? maybe a project's closing or a project's breaking ground that you want to touch upon, you know, what's your strategy, I guess, and how far are you planning out your posts? Well, first of all, you're giving me way too much credit. For, uh, <laughs> for, <laughs> um, you know, honestly, I, there was a time I probably was more into the algorithms and when I posted and posted more. But at the end of the day, what I tell people is, Post what's true to you. Post your best content that you can produce and and share that. Um, I don't have a stock of 50 images. I, I still go by the Instagram. So, you know, I usually don't know what my next post is. I'll I'll go through my feed. I'm I probably take I don't know. I, I'm gonna look at my phone here and tell you how many pictures I have on my phone. And it's probably, so I've got 56,000 pictures on my, my phone. So it's less than a year old. So I've taken those pictures, but I'm, I may take 20 pictures of a kitchen or a base detail and, you know, later at night or in the morning, I'll, I'm an early riser. So I'll get my morning, morning drink or something. I'll sit down and just flip through and, you know, be like, that's a cool picture. Uh, Gretchen's taught me some cool editing skills over the years. Uh, I think presentation is very important. So many people post dark images, blurry images. So um, I'll either edit it or uh, sometimes I'll just text Gretchen the picture and say, hey, can you lighten this up for me or put your, you know, wow factor uh, image uh, filter on there and she'll help me with that. But I think good content, clear and consistent is super helpful for people and just don't overthink of it don't overthink it and then you've got to be be social too i mean you've got to be engaging with other people if people comment uh you've got to comment back and you know follow like accounts i mean if guys inspire you tell them they do you know go out and comment and don't just say cool tell them why you like that image and you know get to know people through your comments I, I like that. And I think that's the one thing a lot of people miss is, you know, social media, be social, right? That reciprocity really rings true as you make connections online, you know, from peers in your network and outside your network, you know, that support. And I, I, I like that strategy. I mean, that's something I probably need to do a little bit better job with mine is although there's a lot of engagement and I engage on others, it's more, you know, there are some people that inspire me such as you, Jason. And it's like, taking that time to, Hey, you know, this, this was really neat. I love that detail. I love what you did here. I love that process, you know, ask questions and, and it just builds that community. And I think that's the one thing people realize is yes, there is some advantages to social media as far as lead generation and clients and product, but there's also a lot of value 
in the networking and the knowledge base. And as we've spoken about so much in this episode, it's about processes and expectations and why make all the mistakes yourself when you could be networking with other builders, you know, in Louisville and say, Jason, like, what do you do in this instance? How do you handle that? Right. And it's going to make me better as I'm developing my business development strategy for my company. Yeah. And, you know, one other thing on, on the posting is I don't think, I know everybody wants a polished image or professional image. And I do think those are extremely important. And I try to post a fair amount of the professional pics, but I'd say at least half of my images are just images I've taken with my phone that are good lighting, good angle, good architectural interest. So um, I think some people wait for the perfect content and, you know, it's not always going to be perfect. You just got to put what you feel is your best at the time and you just got to put it out there. That's the same with the Instagram stories. So that's a better place to share, you know, in process stuff. Um, I think recently I've probably gotten more engagement from my stories than my posts and people love to see and. And some days I don't do it every day. I try to post stories every day, but I don't. Uh, I'm more active than not, but just showing behind the scenes or why I do a certain detail or showing a view from a particular lot or a ceiling treatment, you know, I think people can attest to that. Because when I meet with clients, almost all of them have either screenshots of my stories or IG posts or an AFT kitchen image <laughs> that they bring to me uh, for that initial design meeting. That, that is the fun part, right? As we see clients bring in our peers projects, right? And then we actually know who built those. Uh, but I love that advice. I mean, you talked about, you know, stories are super advantageous. So for those not doing stories, make sure you're utilizing that because it builds the personality, right? You can put the personality as you have Jason behind the company, behind the firm. You can show day to day your interest. You know, I found that I'm not as good of a golfer as you, but I post things as I'm golfing and I have clients that like golf and are like, Brad, we need to get out and play, you know, and it builds that camaraderie. So it's funny how those little things make connections with people. Um, and you talked about presentation, you know, lighting, making sure it's good lighting, which I agree with. Lighting makes everything, you know, authenticity, good content. I mean, that's a reality. You just put out good content. So how is social media? I mean, for anyone who's, you know, they get on and off the wagon, you know, of social media, but for someone who's been consistent for as long as you have, Jason, and you've built a great following there and great respect in the industry, you know, how have you seen social media be a big benefit to you and your company? I mean, it's probably so as of now, I really spend no money on any outside advertising. We used to do magazines and ads and whatever. I, I've really cut all that out. And my focus has just been. Instagram, and then we started a YouTube channel, uh, Building a Better South, uh, when we renovated a home last year. Uh, so those two have been my biggest lead generators, and they've opened so many doors for for us. Um, a huge example, and this is more credit to Gretchen for her style, but you know we helped GE launch a brand new brand called Cafe. You know a little builder designer in Louisville, Kentucky is helping a billion dollar company launch a new product or a new brand. And it's all because of Instagram. And it's, it's mind blowing to me that, you know, that we can do that. So 
they approached Gretchen about helping launch their new matte white stove a year and a half or two ago. I can't remember, but I went to the meeting with her. And at the time I had two spec homes. I was like, well, let's, let's build one house with the matte white kitchen and let's do a matte black kitchen. It'll be side by side. And, you know, we partnered with GE and they rented the houses from me for six months and hosted events. And as opposed to bringing people to their, you know, artificially lit uh, showrooms at Appliance Park, they're in a house in a community. And I mean, we're just a small part of, you know, that cafe brand. And we were one of many they used. Uh, but I think we helped set the tone for that brand, which has opened up so many opportunities for us. We've had, you know, went to New York with Gretchen and she built a display and, you know, with cafe and, you know, so many other opportunities with, with GE. And then we did a show house last year with fine home building and our house uh, furniture, um, like what Gretchen did and I did. And so they helped us furnish the whole house and it was a great show house. And it was all because of Instagram. Um, we've gotten house full of, you know, lumber. I mean, all kinds of great perks have come from our Instagram. Um, and I love that you share that, Jason. It's funny because I will say you have a little cheat sheet, though, with Gretchen in your back pocket as your wife and designer because she is ultra talented. And, you know, I'm, I'm such a fan of her designs. I mean, Gretchen is, is truly talented. And so she needs to hear that on, on this podcast. But um, what's really neat, as you mentioned, just with the social media and the connection, I was fortunate to meet you both, is that it, it's a connector, right? And I had um, one one of my um, guests that was on a few months ago, um, he, Maury, and he's based out of LA. And he said, when, when in the past as a salesperson or as, you know, like LinkedIn, you can utilize and you can go right up the channel real quick and find out, you know, executives and, and people to contact and Instagram's the same. It makes the community so small. And, you know, Cambria had a function in Minnesota and they had builders all across the country. So you win and Gretchen win and I win. And this was years ago. And here we are, you know, I'm a small builder in Scottsdale, you're in Louisville and builders all around the country. And we built these connections, right? And working with these great brands and had I not been on Instagram, had you not been on Instagram, we would not be partnering on this. And then here you go, fast forward now. So opportunities present themselves in many ways through social media. So there is a lot of benefit there. Yeah. And I think, like I said, the biggest thing is you just got to put yourself out there and you don't have to have 50,000 followers. There's micro influencers that have couple hundred or a couple thousand followers, you're still influencing people. So you just got to start and, you know, you never know where that opportunity will, will come from and reach out if there's brands you like. I mean, that's where a ton of our opportunities have come from. You know, James Hardy, Cafe, um, Our House, we love all those brands. LK Sinks, you know, all those, we, you know, have built some great partnerships with those folks, Nolan Fawcett, because we love the product. And not only, you know, can you get paid for it, but you get to use the product and, you know, you truly stand behind it. And we really don't do stuff that we don't stand behind. I know it, you always hear that, but we truly do products that are tried and true to our style. And it just seems authentic that way. And that's the way we want to keep it. Well, I love that, Jason. So what's upcoming and exciting for you guys at Artisan Signature? Man, um, we have 2021 is going to be just a 
killer year. We've been really planning. We've got some amazing projects with some amazing clients. Uh, we're going to have an opportunity for builders, designers, anybody listening to the podcast to come to Louisville next summer. God willing, we've got uh, some kind of uh, <laughs> cure or, uh, you know. Allow to gather in public somehow through COVID, right? Yeah. And even if not, we'll have smaller, but we're doing a national show out uh, that we'll share more of soon. I will be breaking ground on that here real soon, but it'll open next summer and run for about six months. So we're hoping to have some builder events, some designer events, and I think it'll give an opportunity on a, you know, a smaller scale to get a lot of folks together and, you know, share ideas and just bond and uh, learn from each other. Well, that's exciting. So where can our listeners find you? So Artisan Signature Homes on Instagram, Jason Black is the simplest way. And um, that's that's where I'm at. Well, we'll, well we can't thank you enough for coming on, Jason. We'll be following along. And, and maybe if we're lucky, get a trip out and visit you next summer and, and see this house. I look forward to it, Brad. Thanks for having me on. Thanks, Jason. So big thanks to Jason Black for making time to come on and share his incredible insight as far as what he's done to successfully built his company and his social media platform. And a big thanks to all of you for listening and all the support you've given us. Make sure and give us any feedback in the Apple podcast reviews and reach out for any show topics that you want us to uh, address with our guests that come on. And again, for all of you that listen to us, make sure and give us a subscription on whatever podcast platform that you use. 